I just love building things. I mean, it's really like being a magician, right? When you can design a circuit board and, and you know, and, and um, put these little components in different places and connect them with these little traces and then all of a sudden can do this magical thing. It's a very arcane kind of knowledge. Very few people in the world possess that knowledge. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Mikey Siegel. Mikey is the founder of the Consciousness Hacking Movement. He uses technology to facilitate a path towards higher consciousness, self-realization, awakening, and transcendence. Mikey studied computer engineering at UC Santa Cruz, then worked at NASA in the field of intelligent robotics. He's also worked at the MIT Media Lab, focusing in part on social robotics. Today we speak about the confluence of technology and mindfulness, presence, and acceptance. Here's my conversation with Mikey Siegel. Grab this quote off your website. Can technology be a tool to help us realize a profound sense of peace and well-being? What do you think? That's what my life is dedicated to. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I, I think for a lot of people, it's a question. It's like they feel this tension with technology. And so it's like there's this sense of, you know, can technology really play that role? You know, is that possible? And so I'm constantly needing to address that. But actually, my personal opinion is it, it, of course, it can play that role. It's kind of ridiculous to imagine that it can't, that it has any limits in terms of what it can do. It's sort of like um, looking at the food industry and seeing that um, most of the food that we're surrounded with is junk food and fast food and processed food. And it'd be kind of like imagining like, can food be healthy? You know, and it's like, of course, food can be healthy, even if most of what we've seen is is junk food. Well, tell me a little bit of your story in terms of how you became to be somebody who's identified with the consciousness hacking movement and your your kind of your engagement with technology. The The hacking came before the consciousness part. Well, actually, you know, that's not true. Um, they've both been a part of my life since I was a little kid. I've always been interested in how things work, taking things apart, building things, the engineering side. I've always been interested in what's beyond. Um, since I was a kid, I was reading books about uh, the mysteries of consciousness and the unexplained and out-of-body experiences and meditation and these topics. And um, But when I went to school, I focused in on the engineering side. I studied computer engineering. I studied robotics in grad school. And when I finished grad school um, and I had really accomplished all the things that I thought were supposed to make me happy, I was really put face to face with um, the anxiety, the, um, the sense of disconnection, the, um, the kind of squashed and empty emotional experience. And, you know, a lot of this sense of like, life must be more than what this is. Well, let's talk about the work that you did to that point. What was your engagement with, with technology uh, going forward from your, your teen years, for example? When I was young... I would pretend to be sick um, so that I could stay home from school and invent stuff. I remember um, building a little thing so my cat could touch the door and then it would levers and pulleys would happen and gears would move and motors and then the door would open and the cat could come in or that uh, if my brother tried to get in my room, he'd get electrically shocked, you know, these kinds of things. Um, And then... um, when I went to um, undergrad at UC Santa Cruz, year 2000, yeah, started uh, undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. And I was not a, a, like a nerdy type, you know, I was like a smart kid, but I wasn't like an engineering, you know, kind of nerd person. And, um, and so I was just taking every class I could get my hands on from the history of folk music to singing and, and social psychology classes across the board. And then it came time about two years into it that I had to pick a major, <laughs> kind of get forced into that, I guess. And I said, well, what's the thing that's, that's interesting? That's the thing I'll, I'll probably never learn on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I chose computer engineering because, um, you get to study computer science, you get to study um, electrical engineering, it's kind of a fusion. And I loved it. And my life has never been the same since. And I, I went from there and I spent some time um, at NASA and then um, about a year. And then I spent um, time at the MIT Media Lab 
Yeah. First of all, I just love building things. I really get a genuine pleasure out of that. So as soon as it started to turn towards this, I mean, it's really like being a magician, right? When you can design a circuit board and, and, you know, and, and, um, put these little components in different places and connect them with these little traces. And then all of a sudden can do this magical thing. It can sense things. It can respond to things. It can do stuff. It's a very arcane kind of knowledge. Very few people in the world possess that knowledge. Uh, you know, one of my projects was um, designing ways for flocks of robots to move in coordination with each other, to be modeled on natural systems like flocks of birds, mm. you know, for example. And that's what ended up getting me into this robotic space, was actually exploring these kind of group robot dynamics. But what I ended up focusing on in grad school eventually was the area of social robotics. So this was really going into the sci-fi realm of robotics is more around human robot interaction. And these are robots with facial expressions that show emotion that can read emotion. And it's really trying to say, well, how do you essentially give a computer a, a sort of a, a, a human like interface? Mm. Right. And, and then how do we interact differently with the, the computer? And so my work, actually, the title of my thesis was persuasive robotics, how robots change our minds. Okay. And it was all about um, exploring how this kind of social robot can influence us. There was a project that you did at the um, Science Museum of Boston? Yeah. Yeah, we had about 300, 350 subjects that we ran through a really big study. So we had this robot set up in the Museum of Science. We were looking at different aspects of the robot's appearance and behavior. So we'd look at the robot gender. The male robot, female robot, or how close the robot would stand to you or something like perceived autonomy. So we literally would pull the curtain aside behind the robot and there's like an undergrad <laughs> at a computer and we would tell people the undergrad is controlling the robot, uh -huh. you know? So all these different conditions that we would compare to each other to see how uh, um, ultimately how much money people were willing to donate to the robot. In this project, you yeah. gave uh, participants five $1 bills. Is that right? Yeah, you, you've done your homework. Yeah, this is, this is good. Everyone got an envelope with five $1 bills. And so that was constant throughout okay. the all 350 people. Um, we also had a bunch of questions we asked them at the end. So that was also constant for everyone. And then we would change these things. And this money is what's called a behavioral measure. You know, it's, it's like they're doing a thing. It's not about their opinion. It's really like they're going to give $5 or they're going to give $3. And so what we found, um, first of all, big picture, these things matter, right? People, people are deeply influenced by the quality of the robot, the, the, the gender of the robot, how close the robot stands to you. These things actually change how much people trust the robot. They change how much people are willing to donate to the robot. Yeah. You know, a lot of different factors. And one of my big learnings that came from this, which I, I, I'm realizing more and more, it's like, you know, in retrospect, you see how everything fell in line to kind of influence your life later on was it really gave me a deep understanding of how influential technology really is. Yeah. And, and the question that I grappled with in grad school and the question that, that really drove me into what I'm doing today is if technology is so influential, what's the greatest influence that we can imagine? How can that influence be put to the best use? My life has essentially been focused on that. It's kind of saying, wow, here's technology. It's not going away. It's really here and its influence is not going away. Mm. So what is, what is, how can technology most serve humanity? Do you continue to have an interest in robotics or was that sort of in, in, in service of a, the purpose of technology in general? Yeah, for me, the, the interest in robotics has sort of faded away, mm. at least for the moment. Um, and uh, my interest is, is really open to lots of different kinds of technology, but in another sense, it's really narrow. I'm really just interested in the exact same thing that every facilitator that shows up at Esalen is interested in. How do you deepen um, and expand the human experience? Mm. How do you support human potential? Mm. So the Guardian called you an enlightenment seeker. <laughs> First of all, is, does that feel true? And, and second of all, if it does, was there a turning point for you? What was it? 
the central focus of my life is around, um, the, I guess you could say the exploration of my own consciousness or the deepening of my own experience. Uh-huh. Because for me, everything is a reflection of that. Everything I do, everything I create, everyone I meet, every conversation I have, everything is a reflection of, of that experience. When I finished grad school, left with a sense of sort of dissatisfaction of existential angst, I ended up at this yoga ashram in Virginia mm-hmm. called Yogaville. We always end up at a yoga ashram. Yeah, it's really like this narrative. It's, it's great, you know, the right of the right of passage. And then, of course, what's the other thing that happens? You end up in India, <laughs> right? I thought you were going to say you end up accidentally taking some mushrooms. Oh, yeah, that wasn't accidental, though. <laughs> so what happens at the at Yogaville? That was my first introduction to real practice. And, you know, the, the, the thing I like to say is, is from an engineering perspective, I'd been approaching life only looking outside of myself to kind of solve the problem of human happiness. And I'd completely neglected my inner world and I was missing half the equation. And so I essentially saw, wow, there's a whole universe in there. And I also realized that that is what my suffering hinged upon was not the world itself, but my relationship to the world. And so that was the beginning of a journey that I've never looked back from. And since then I've done meditation retreats and psychedelics and traveled to India. And, you know, I, I have a regular deep practice and workshops, you know, just the, all the endless stuff that probably many of the listeners are familiar with of a kind of dedicated spiritual path. What I saw emerging in my life was what at first seemed like a conflict, which was that um, I only wanted to focus on consciousness and awakening. And then I also really um, loved engineering. Mm -hmm. And I really saw the great potential for technology. And it took me quite a while. It wasn't obvious at first, but over time I started to realize, wait a minute, I love engineering. The only thing that I really want to work on as an engineer is supporting the deepest aspects of the human experience. Whether or not that's possible didn't matter because I couldn't think of a better use of my engineering skills. That was the highest and best and most exciting way that I thought that I could, that I could um, you know, work on and develop new, new things. And so I started to explore what it would mean to kind of devote my life as an engineer to doing what most of these workshop leaders at Esalen are doing, which is elevating, deepening our human potential. So what was the first work that you did that felt like you were engaging with this new purpose? Once I realized that this is what I wanted to do, I quit my job. I had kind of a job at a tech startup kind of thing in Silicon Valley, and I didn't know what I was going to do next. But I knew that I wanted to focus on this intersection, so I just started exploring, and I actually ended up thinking I would go back to graduate school. And I had a pretty good background, you know, like graduate degree from MIT and, you know, pretty, pretty good chops, pretty. And I had written this statement of purpose, which I like spent a long time on, was really articulate. And so I started to find potential graduate school advisors that would accept me and support my work. And the way I described it is I said, look, um, people have been studying meditation now for a couple decades. It's well established. It's called contemplative science. I want to do contemplative engineering. Mm. I want to apply that science towards creating new technologies to deepen the meditation experience. Okay. You know, it's natural relationship between science and engineering, right? Nobody had any idea what I was talking about. And I went from person to person to person, all scoured academia to try to find someone. Couldn't find a single person until I found um, a professor named Gino Yu. Um, who is at Hong, Hong Kong Polytech University, and then another guy who was a visiting professor there named Jeffrey Martin, and ended up um, moving to Hong Kong for a while, wow. um, just because these were the two people that I could find that like totally got it. Mm. And so I spent about uh, you know the better part of a, a year learning everything that I could about the brain and all the possible technologies and the body in any way that you could possibly, at that time, engineer enlightenment. Mm. 
that was really what I was focused on engineering enlightenment. Right. And so what happens next? You come back to the United States. Yeah. I came back to the United States, um, very, uh, confident that I not only, could I engineer enlightenment, but that I knew what enlightenment was. <laughs> I really, I really knew. And I would, I would be excited to sit anyone down and, you know, enlighten them about what enlightenment is. Um, I was that time very focused on a more of a, a, a non-dual path, kind of a neo-advaita kind of path, really just deconstructing your sense of self, a very much awareness focused, essentially a spiritual practice from the neck up. Yeah. I kind of like looked down upon um, anything that involved emotion or touchy-feely stuff or the body or anything like that. I ended up in a in an ayahuasca ceremony. It was one of the first things I did when I got back from Hong Kong. There's a longer story there, but I ended up on one of these healing mats in the middle of the room and a crowd of people kind of around me. And it was the first time that I had ever actually felt what I knew us at the time was energy in my body, mm. which now I recognize is, is actually just a sense aspect of human sensation, embodied experience that we're all feeling all the time. It's just a little more subtle than emotion. But at the time it was like a totally mind boggling. And it was even mind boggling that there were people that were able to also seem to feel that and interact with that. And it was sort of my first exposure to like embodiment and subtler aspects of the human experience. And that propelled me into a whole new area of interest, realizing that um, even after a few years on the spiritual path, I was still completely avoiding my emotional experience. Mm. I was still completely avoiding my body. I was still completely avoiding feeling. Not only did my whole spiritual path begin to shift in that direction, but the technology that I started to think about started to shift as well. So one of the things that I designed um, that came out of that interest was um, this space. It almost looks like this um, space age cocoon with like ribs and this white fabric stretched over it that two people sit inside of and it's all white and they're sitting against these big wooden kind of mandala chairs facing each other and it's this kind of very intimate enclosed space and they're connected to sensors that measure their heart and their breath and each person can actually see the other person's breath as a halo of light behind them. And so when they inhale, the halo of light kind of grows. And when they exhale, it goes to darkness. Okay. And each person can hear the other person's breath as an ocean wave. And so when you inhale, the ocean wave crests. And when you exhale, the wave crashes. And then each person can feel the other person's heartbeat through a personal subwoofer against their back. And people describe this as almost like a, a womb-like experience. In this space, there's Unlike a lot of the tech that we use, there's no goal, there's no charts, there's no graphs. It's not like typical biofeedback where you're trying to get somewhere mm. or fix something or get better at something. This was just about helping people to feel their own embodied experience and to feel the embodied experience of another person and to begin to blur the boundary between self and other. And that was really the precursor for what the technology that I brought here to Esalen. It's really exciting to be here. And as far as I know, it's one of the first times that anything like this has happened. And at the same time, it feels, it feels like I'm part of um, a rich history here of innovation. And it's interesting, we don't think about it that way, but a lot of the, all of the tools and approaches to facilitation and techniques that exist that are commonly used here were developed by innovators. People that really had to experiment and try and fail and do new things. And what I'm doing with the technology is no different. I'm just using a different medium. That's all. You know, the metaphor that I like to use is this, um, this idea of a sacred object or a sacred tool. And humans have been using sacred objects as part of a spiritual practice for for thousands and thousands of years from um you know stone cut um you know idols to to even the temples that we live in the the bowls that we use the incense all of these objects are imbued with a kind of a sacredness to support a deeper experience and so for me there's absolutely no reason why 
modern technology can't be um, designed with the intention to support awakening and be used and treated as a sacred or spiritual tool. And actually for me, that's the way technology should be used. That's its most noble purpose. And so here we are at Esalen in a room with about 300 pounds of electronic equipment draped with wires and lights and, you know, a whole control console with a bunch of screens and graphs. I mean, it's a real, this is not like, you know, a metaphor of technology. This is really like a lot of advanced technology that we have in the room. We're really trying to explore how this tech can be used to deepen a sense of connection with oneself and with, with the other and with the collective. We can take um, up to 24 people at a time connect them to sensors that measure their heart, can measure the breath, we can measure the brain, we can measure electrodermal response, which is a skin conductivity, it's connected to emotional arousal, and we can turn all of that into light and sound and music. And unlike a lot of the biofeedback technology or things you might buy off the shelf, this doesn't do just one thing or two things. It actually can do thousands of things. We, like things that are way beyond anything I've imagined. And so like a musical instrument, if you put it in the hands of one musician, it's going to sound one way. You put it in the hands of another musician, it could sound completely different. The difference between classical music and like death metal, you know, it's both guitars. And so for this month, we're bringing in different facilitators from different traditions, from Zen monks to um, right now we have Michaela Bohm, who's a uh, tantric teacher. We had uh, East Forest, who's an electronic musician. Um, we have a, a poet, a dance teacher, really uh, a wide variety. And we have um, this experimental kind of process that we take them through where we introduce them to the tech and we just really throw them in the fire. And they take their decades of experience facilitating and they see how they can use the technology to add to what they already do. And every day is different. What happens is um, every day it's open to the entire Esalen community. We have a sign-up sheet in the, in the lodge. People will show up on Monday for a five-day program. And sometimes we'll have people who want to come every single day. Uh-huh. Um, because they'll come twice and they'll, those two days will be so different, so different that then they want to come a third just to see what's, what's going to happen next. Are the people having, um, transformative experiences or are they meditating? What's happening when they go and listen to the presenters? Yeah, it varies widely what happens. I'll give you some examples, right? First of all, it varies widely in terms of what we do and it varies widely in terms of, um, how people respond. So, you know, let's say we're, we're, we, we do a whole set of surveys um, that rate, you know, how people's experience was from one to seven, right, in different ways. And so let's say we've had experiences where the average was probably like a 3.5 or a four. And we've had experiences where that group average is probably like close to a seven, you know, the whole the whole spectrum. And then in terms of well, what what are people actually doing here? Because I imagine it still sounds a little abstract. So are you for all. Zen monk, we gave him the tech and he took to it like a fish in water and he immediately had an idea for what he wanted to do. And he said, okay, I want people to um, come in and first they're going to do a solo heartbeat meditation where they have headphones on and they're listening to the sound of their own heartbeat and then I'm guiding them through the microphone, through their headphones. And he, being a Zen teacher was focusing on the impermanence of the heartbeat and how that beat will never come again. It's gone forever. And that's one less heartbeat that you have in your life. And then focusing on the silence between each heartbeat and the moment that it changes from silence to the sound of the beat. And then the moment that that beat goes back to silence, you know, and so classic, you know, and if your attention wanders, you know, bring your attention back. Very, very Buddhist kind of thing. And then, um, Turn to your neighbor now. You each have the opportunity to share your heart with the other person. If you want to and when you want to. If you decide you want to share your heart with the other person, you're going to hold up your light. Everyone has a light 
That's their own personal light. You're going to hold up your light. And when the light starts blinking with your heartbeat, your partner can now hear your heartbeat. And then you can literally hand your partner your light, your heart. And this object, this light, which is like a little, it's honestly a little mason jar that I, (laughs) but it's like this glass, you know, object pulsing with your heart. It takes on this significance of really being your heart in a way. And so then these two partners can go back and forth trading their heart with each other. Some people, it's very profound. And then the last step is around the collective. And he said, okay, well, we're going to start in silence for a few minutes And then when someone's ready, you decide, feel into it. You're going to take your light and you're going to put it into the circle. When you put your light into the circle, your heartbeat is going to come through our sound system, which is a big sound system with a big subwoofer. So this is like a boom, you know, intense heartbeat. And then when the second person's ready, you put your heart in. Third person, fourth person, fifth person. And pretty soon you have 24 people's heartbeats thundering and rumbling through the space and people expect that the heartbeats are going to synchronize and um and they don't really um actually people's heartbeats really are on their own rhythm they're really connected to the needs of their own body whereas the breath is more likely to synchronize and so you really get this incredible texture of these hearts beating and then slowly one beat at a time is removed you know and and sorry you would say you don't get to choose the time of your death. Mm. It's intense, you know, and then all of a sudden we're left in silence. So, um, I can give you a couple other examples that'll give you the whole sense of what, what's the range here. Um, one of the other things we did is we, we brought a group of people together to do something like a, like a tea group or circling. Um, it's kind of a, um, a chance for a group of people to get together and have deeply open and honest and vulnerable communication. But we put up two big screens on either side of the circle. And on the screens was a graph of every single person's heart rate for the last three minutes. And so everyone could see everyone else's heart rate. And so, for example, let's say, um, you know, one person is sharing something and the person next to them is silent. But all of a sudden you see their heart rate spike. Right. This is could be an opportunity now for one of the people in the circle to say, you know, hey, Bill, do you want to share what's happening for you? I'm noticing, you know, you're quiet over there, but like, you know, that seems like something's going on, you know? And so it was, the idea was that it would be this, um, kind of tool that the group could use to kind of really gain some insight into each other. And, and that was probably one of our, one of our clunkiest sessions. You know, I remember at one point someone just stops in the middle of it and says, so what's the point of this? <laughs> you know, it sounds like one of the like, kind of like marriage of the encounter groups that used to go on here. Yes, it's totally, it's like a techno encounter group. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, that was, that was one of our, our more awkward sessions. Um, but interesting. And then, um, you know, one of the sessions uh, that, that you went to was with East Forest, who's one of my favorite electronic musicians. He does music that's perfect for, for meditation and, and journeying and deep experiences. And we created this collaboration with him where we could actually weave the, either the heartbeats or the breathing of the entire group into a live musical performance. So he's been collecting field recordings for like a decade of crickets and um, uh, rivers and rain and frogs and you name it. And what we did is we um, mapped those to the heartbeats and to the breath. And we gave him the controls so he could decide when people's heartbeat and breath comes in and out of the music. And so he's creating this live music experience, singing with a keyboard and special effects. And then he'll start bringing in people's breath and then playing music to people's breath and then, and then bringing the breath out dynamically as the experience goes on. So, and everyone's sort of lying down. It's kind of this journey that people go on. One of the biggest challenges with the technology is the technology. (laughs) It's, it's uh, clunky it's, um, it's kind of gets in the way. It's, there's a lot of wires. You got to strap things on, you trying to change your position and then the wire's stuck and then you got to move. And so we're, we're in these early stages, right? Where like, it's a little cumbersome. And so 
a lot of the success of these experiences depends on the production quality, right? It's such a big factor. The East Forest experiences needed a little more ironing out. And so my sense was um, that sometimes the tech kind of detracted a little bit for some people because of the, the kind of the complexity of it and just how we happened to execute it wasn't as smooth as it could have been. But for some people who I talked to, it helped them to just deeply drop in. The breath or the heart becomes like this, this, it's not a lullaby. It's really, it's like a gravitational pull that can draw you into yourself and draw you into your experience. So are you at a point now with the, the research that you're doing that you can begin to draw conclusions or are you at a point where it's sort of like, oh, this is where I want to go with my next uh, inquiry? Yeah, I have a lot of directions I want to go. Um, we haven't really looked at the data. Um, what kind of data are you, are you collecting? Is it in the form of survey or are you actually drawing data from the people who have been hooked up to sensors? The main, the main data that we really care about is, is the surveys to just really understand, are, are we creating a deep and meaningful experience for people? Um, secondarily, we're looking at the bio data. Um, so it might be heart, uh, data from the heart. It might be data from the breath. We're doing a little bit of brain stuff. And we can look and we can say, well, okay, did people who have a deeper experience or feel more connected to the group show a different pattern of heart rate variability, for example? Or um, do groups themselves that feel more connected as a whole, which we're asking about, do they show some kind of collective resonance or, or synchrony between them, between their bodies? I really, what I want is to create a tool that can be, you know, a thousand times more potent than any human facilitator that can, that can um, be a tool that humanity can use to um, really quickly and deeply support um, healing and transformation and the elevation of consciousness um, as collective. Are you interested in the field of virtual reality? I see it as one of um, the emerging technologies that can be applied in this area that's like incredibly potent. Essentially, every meditation technique ever created is a set of instructions to um, direct and shape the quality of human attention, right? I mean, that's what they're all doing in some way because, because we are what we attend to. Virtual reality is one of the most powerful technologies we have to hold and shape human attention. And so if it's used as a meditation tool, it could become one of the most powerful tools for meditation to ever exist. I was reading the article about you, about this movement really, uh, in The Guardian, and they were describing a tool that someone had created, a virtual reality tool, that helped you visualize your chakras. I mean, it was written in such a way as to be disparaging. Most of these articles are, unfortunately. <laughs> it's just snarky uh, journalism. Is a... I wonder why that is. Um, I don't know, but I found it to be consistent. And it's made me, honestly, it's made me not want to do interviews and those sorts of things because I don't really feel seen um, for actually what I'm trying to do. Um, which probably is a common sob story, you know, <laughs> people trying to do like weird stuff. <laughs> but so it's a good question. Well, it's, a, it's certainly the easy way to kind of sum up a story is to kind of boil it all down to navel gazing or boil it all down to these people have so much time on their hands. They don't have to deal with real problems. So they get to pop on virtual reality glasses and have a transformative experience that way. I think that there's a, um, a kind of a resentment or something towards the tech yes. uh, community in Silicon Valley in general as um, kind of having an imbalance of privilege, um, which is true, and, and power and really being a lot more focused on profit and, and personal gain uh -huh. um, than on the welfare of humanity. Right. And it's also easy to make fun of people for the, um, this so-called win-win-win. Uh, idea that they have where I'm going to become a millionaire and I'm going to help, you know, humanity, yeah. you know, this, this whole have your cake and eat it too idea. Yeah. 
So I um I didn't mean to lead us down that rabbit yeah. hole of snarky um <laughs> snarky reporting. Yeah. But I am curious in asking you to be a prognosticator for yeah. for a moment. I'm very interested in the, the near future and in technological breakthroughs and the way that it might shape our everyday life. So would you do me the service of making a couple of predictions for the ways that our lives might be shaped and might be different, let's say in the next 10 years or next 20 years? In my view, we're moving from the information age to the experience age. So what we've seen is information on demand. And everyone listening to this has seen in their lifetime the transition from, like, you want to hear music, you need to either by chance hear it on the radio or go to some store and buy a CD and it costs, like, $17 or something. Now you can have any music, anytime, anywhere, any video, any news article, any information you want on demand all the time. In my humble opinion, most of the time when we're trying to get information or content, really what we're trying to do is feel a certain way. Yes. And so it's a a kind of a um, inefficient way of going about it. And if you look at some of the tech that's starting to emerge in this transformative technology space, which is kind of the name for this domain, the actual user interfaces themselves, the apps, for example, are actually um, focused on how you want to feel. So for example, there's a a technology, which I think they went out of business called Think, which was um, something you literally stick on your forehead and it it runs a small electric current through your brain. Um, This was actually built on decades of of, uh, a lot of science. When you open up the app, you decide, do you want to feel happy? Do you want to feel relaxed? Do you want to feel joyful? Um, So it had like a list of six different ways that you could feel. Wow. And again, it's it's not, you know, it doesn't work as well as the you know listeners might imagine. It's it kind of steers you in that direction. But that is the beginning of what will ultimately be, I believe, the technological capability to choose how you want to feel, when you want to feel it, wherever you want to feel it. And when all of a sudden that becomes possible. That has um, a lot of really profound uh, consequences and implications because you can just as easily create, um, you know, which is most of what will be out there, hedonistic technologies, technologies that are really just designed to like be the technological equivalent of heroin or whatever, as you can create the most impactful contemplative technologies that the world has ever seen. There's a project that's happening kind of in some inner circles um, connected to me that is using ultrasound brain stimulation to stimulate a certain part of the brain to create a certain aspect of a meditation experience. This is being developed by um, a couple neuroscientists. I've talked to a few very experienced meditators who this has been tested on, and I'm not naming names, but um, one of them many people would listeners would know who this person is been uh, teaching meditation and practicing for close to 40 years said that this technology was the single most impactful intervention that they've ever experienced in their meditation practice that it was the equivalent of about five meditation retreats Um, and this is a person who's very precise in how they describe things and um and that report of the impact of this technology is was consistent for a lot of different people. I haven't had a chance to try it yet. I say that to begin to kind of wake the listeners up, that this isn't a hypothetical kind of dream or fantasy, that we're seriously talking about an emerging technological landscape that can radically change and deepen human experience, whether we like it or not. And so now we need to begin to have some really serious conversations about what that means. Um, Immediately, people become uncomfortable, I found, um, around this idea of shortcuts. You know, it's like this this sort of gut resistance. Like, wait, something's wrong here. You just push a button and all of a sudden, like, I had to work for like 10,000 hours to get to that place, you know? And I want to acknowledge that because I think there's a lot of intelligence to that resistance. What I found 
is that when people are feeling that resistance, the, the, the intelligence is there is a sense of like that there's something missing. That even though you're, you're doing something good, that there's some other harm, there's some other consequence that's happening. First of all, anytime you introduce a new intervention like this, there's always a consequence, right? There's always some, you're optimizing for one thing and something else will happen. That's not just true with technology. That's true with every single meditation technique that's ever been invented. They all are really good at something and they're all going to leave something out. You're going to like have bright expanded awareness, but you're going to lose your body or you're going to be really in touch with your emotions and heal your childhood wounding, but you're going to like totally forget that you're actually not that at all, you know? And so these aren't new problems, but they're incredibly amplified. What it comes down to for me is um, the Buddhist notion of skillful means. And the Buddhist notion of skillful means says something like um, it's the um, intervention that most deeply and effectively supports the, um, the awakening or spiritual progress of the practitioner. And um, I don't know how long awakening is supposed to take. I don't know that there's some inherently bad thing about what took 10,000 hours all of a sudden taking two hours. It could be great. It could be the thing that humanity needs the most. But if it hurts people in the process, then it's actually not skillful, right? And so from my point of view, um, the question is not how fast can we do it? Or how strong can we do it? How quick? The question for me is, how do we continue to increase skillfulness? And what happens if you can infinitely increase skillful means? And what happens if you let go of any cultural boundaries or limitations or ideas of, well, you can't use tech or you can't use music or you can't use educational systems or you can't, you know, whatever the ideas we have are, forget it, drop it all. If we're willing to use all that humanity has to offer to help us awaken and we let go of any idea of what awakening looks like or how long it's supposed to take and we just say, how can we be as skillful as humanly possible? I don't know. Maybe we can actually see in a matter of years radical global shift in human consciousness with the aid of science and technology very well said i'm curious how your work if you have um i mean you've given kind of a general overview of exactly what you intend to do and i'm just curious if you had any more specific plans for the next couple of years or, or even, I don't know, a five or 10 year plan for stuff that, that you want to do to achieve this? I'm increasingly interested in the interpersonal and the collective experience. And the individual experience is super important, um, but um, it's just not where my interest is. And, um, and so I've had experiences where I've been sitting with a person and I've, we've both experienced one mind that there is a level at which we become the same. It's beyond looking at a different person and knowing, oh, we're interconnected or we're unified in some way, but actually um, dropping down below the political differences, below the, the, um, different kinds of preferences, the difference in personality, the, all these differences that we have, there's a level at which we actually are the same thing. I'm interested in how that can become a collective experience for humanity. And my personal belief is that not only is that a part of our own evolutionary path as human beings, but that Technology is part of what it means to be human. In the same way that birds build birds' nests and bees build beehives, humans have been creating stone tools and, and fire and building technology um, for our entire evolutionary path. 
And for me, that continues with the evolution of consciousness. My interest is in, is in taking the work I'm doing here at Esalen and imagining what it looks like for a billion people at a time. What would it mean for technology to be a kind of a central nervous system for the planet that helps to support a kind of a deep resonance that brings us into a lived global sense of interconnectedness? Are you interested in the wearable of, of technology? Yeah, so um, what that might look like in five years might be wearables. It might look like things that act through our phone, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and what it might look like in 25 years might be, I don't know, a pill we take and the technology is floating in our bloodstream. You know, I don't, I don't know what, what it will look like. Um, I guess shorter term, if I imagine like, if I imagine like, what are some steps in that direction? You know, personally, like, I'd love to see, um, you know, a, a relational toolkit. You know, technology for two people, whether they're friends or in a romantic relationship, where you hook up to some sensors and you're guided through some deep exercises using your heartbeat, using your breath that can help people to actually find each other. Um, and I was just wondering if you could speak at all to the the ideas around artificial intelligence that, that may have some intersection uh, with your work or thoughts about where artificial intelligence is, is possibly heading. There's a lot of concern around artificial intelligence. And I want to say that I, I feel that that's justified. The biggest question that um, I think about and ask when I imagine um, the future of artificial intelligence is who's designing it and why? Because intelligence can be um, in service to fear and greed and a sense of separateness. And intelligence can be in service to love and compassion and a sense of interconnectedness. And when that intelligence becomes extraordinarily powerful, then it becomes an amplifier of whatever the intention was that created it. And so the thought exercise that I, I like to give people is um, imagine two really well-funded companies each get like half a billion dollars in funding to build the most advanced AI imaginable, both with a team of brilliant engineers. One company has your kind of classic Silicon Valley structure. You've got a bunch of investors who only care about profit and um and are constantly putting pressure on the company to get their return back. You have a CEO who um, cares more about proving himself to the world, to his dad or, you know, whatever the complex might be and, and is very ego focused and um, runs the company from a place of fear and control. And you have a second organization structured in what I call the um, startup ashram, where um, the engineers are spending part of their day um, in deep practice, meditating, um, and in deep relational practice with their team. And they're spending the other part of the day writing code and developing the software. The funders for that company um, demand, actually demand legally, that positive social impact be part of the bottom line be part of what the company accomplishes in the world. And the CEO is dedicated to selfless service and to the welfare of humanity. And, and you have the entire organization focused around doing as much good as possible. Which AI would you rather have in the world? Right. So I guess we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and hope. <laughs> Um, kind of just to conclude, I think there's a tension between developing um, interactive technology at a place like Esalen, which is sort of a place that people go to escape from their own engagement with technology. So I'm sure that the, the, this idea has occurred to you during your month here, and I'm just um, interested in thoughts around that. Yeah, I acknowledge it every single time a new group comes in. Um, and, um, and it's true. We come to a place like Esalen to unplug. Um, but the reason we need to unplug 
is because most of the technology in our lives is distracting and disruptive and is not designed to support well-being. It's actually in a way designed to hold our attention because attention is tied to profit. Mm. It's using us in a way. Um, and when people think of technology, it's synonymous with that. But actually, um, technology can, can be anything. This microphone that we're using right now is this technology, right? And so the idea that I'm trying to inspire in people is that it's actually possible to create technology as a sacred or spiritual tool. And that's really what our intention is here. And I had a, an older woman, it was very sweet in our session today. And she, she said, you know, I'm really not a fan of technology. And I came here to get away from technology. And she said, but this was really great. <laughs> you know, she's like, she said, this actually really deepened my experience. And that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was why I'm here to, to hear that. Mikey Siegel, how can our listeners find out more about you? Um, you can go to my website, Mikey Siegel, M-I-K-E-Y-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. Or you could check out Consciousness Hacking at Kohak, C-O-H-A-C-K dot life. Nice. And you can check out links to his previous projects like his robotic opera, persuasive robotics, biologger with elephant seals, and all kinds of strange stuff that, that this mad scientist has been up to. Mikey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.